Chapter Three of Shorty McCabe by Sewell Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Say, you can't always tell, can you? Here a couple of weeks back, I thought I'd wiped Italy off the map. We'd settled down in this little old burg, me and the boss and Mr. Rankins, nice and comfortable, and not too far from Broadway. And we was having our four o'clock teas with the mitts as regular as if there was money coming to us for each round, when this here Sherlock proposition turns up. Mr. Rankins, he was the first to spot it, and he comes trotting in where we was prancing round the mat, his jaw loose and his eyebrows propped up like Eddie Foy's when he wears his salary face. It's most unaccountable, sir, says he. Time out, says I, blocking the boss's pet uppercut. Mr. Rankin seems to have something in the place where his mind ought to be. Hankins, says the boss, putting down his guard reluctant. Haven't I told you never to... Yes, sir, yes, sir, says Mr. Rankins. But there's that outrageous thing fast to the door, and law at me, sir, I can't pull it off. The boss, he looks at me, and I looks at the boss, and then we both look at Mr. Rankins. Seeing as how he couldn't reveal much with that cheese pie face of his, we goes and takes a look at the door. It was an outside one, just as he gets off the elevator. And there was something there, too. The dizziest kind of a visiting card that was ever handed out, I suspicion, in those particular swell chambers for single gents. It was a cuff, just a plain everyday wrist chafer, pinned up with the wickedest little blood letter that ever came off the knife rack. Half an inch of the blade stuck through the panel, so the one who put it there must have meant that it shouldn't blow away. The boss jerks it loose, sizes it up a minute, and says, Stiletto, eh? Made in Firenze. That's Florence. Shorty, have you any friends from abroad that are in the habit of leaving their cutlery around promiscuous? I know folks as far west as Hoboken, if that's what you mean, says I. But there ain't none of them in the meat business. Well, we takes the thing inside under the bunch light and has another squint. He is writing in red ink, says I, and holds up the cuff. Read it, says the boss. I could play it better on a flute, says I. You try. We didn't have to try hard. The minute he skinned his eye over that, his jaw goes loose like he'd stopped a body wallop with his short ribs. It's Tuscan, says he, and it means that someone's in trouble and wants help. Do they take this for a police headquarters or a charity organization, says I? Looks to me like a new kind of wireless from the wash lady. Why don't you pay her? That's one of my cuffs, says the boss. It's too well ventilated to get into that bag again, says I. Shorty, says he, letting my Joe Webber go over his shoulder. Do you know where I saw that cuff last? It was in North Italy. Then he figured out by the queer laundry marks just where he'd shed this identical piece of his trousseau. We left it with a few mementos just as valuable when we made the quick move away from that punky old palace after our little monkey shine with the brigands. You don't mean, says I, but there wasn't no use wasting breath on that question. He was blushing. 
we fiddled some on its having come from old Vincenzo, or maybe from Bluebeak, the count that rented us the place. But the minute we tied that cuff up with the castle, we knew that the one who sent it meant to ring up a hurry call on us for help, and that it wasn't anybody but the lady brigandess herself, the one that put us next and kept the boss from being sewed up in a blanket. That's a hey rube for me, says I. How about you? But the boss was kicking off his gym shoes and diving through his shirt. In five minutes by the watch, we were dressed for slootin'. I know a dago roundsman, says I. No police in this, says the boss. Guess you're right, says I. Too much limelight and too little headwake. We'll cut the cops out. Where to first? I'm going to call the Italian consul, says the boss. He's a friend of mine. So we opened the sloop business with a ride in one of those heavyweight electric hansoms, telling the throttle pusher to shove it wide open. Maybe we broke the speed ordinance some, but we caught Mr. Consul on the fly, just as he was punching the time card. He wore a rich set of Peter Cooper whiskers, but barring them, he was a well-finished old gent with a bow that was an address of welcome all by itself. The way that he shoved out leather chairs, you'd thought he was making the present of them to us. But the boss hadn't any time to waste on flourishes. We got right down to cases. He wanted to know about where the Tuscans usually headed for when they left Ellis Island, what sort of gangs they had in New York, and what kind of black-hand deviltry they were most given to. He asked a hundred questions and never answered one. Then he shook hands with Mr. Consul and we chased out. It looks like the Malabistos, says the boss. They have a kind of headquarters over a basement restaurant. Perhaps they've shut her up there. We'll take a look at the place anyway. A lot of good it did us, too. The spaghetti wakes was in full blast with a lot of husky lowbrows going in and out, smoking cheroots half as long as your arm, and acting as if the referee had just declared a draw. The opening for a couple of bare-fisted investigators wasn't what you might call promising. Not having their grips and passwords, we didn't feel as though we could make good on their lodge. I could round up a gang and then we could rush em, says I. That wouldn't do, says the boss. Strategy is what we need here. I'm just out of that, says I. Perhaps there's a back door, says the boss. So we moseys around the block, hunting for a family entrance. But that ain't the way they build down in Mulberry Bend. They chucks their old rookeries slam up against one another to keep them from falling over, I guess. Generally, though, there's some sort of garlic flu through the middle of the block, but you need a balloon to find it. Hist, says I. Hold me head while I thinks a thunk. Didn't I come down here once to watch a tryout? Sure, and it was pulled off in the palatial parlors of Appetite Joe Cardenzo's Chowder Association, the same being the back room two flights up. Now, if we could dig up Appetite Joe... We did. He was around the corner playing scope for brandied plums, but he let go the cards long enough to listen to my fairy tale about wanting a joint where I could give my friend a private lesson. Sure, says Joe, passing out the key, but you break at the chair, I charge a fifty cent. There were two back windows, and the view wasn't one you'd want to put in a frame. 
down below was our court filled with coal boxes and old barrels and perfumed like the lee side of a barren island but catty corners across was the back of that spaghetti mill we could tell it by the two-decker billboard on the roof in the upper windows we could see dago women and kids but the windows on the second floor were black iron shutters says the boss and that's where she is if anywhere got a scaling ladder or a jimmy in your pocket says i then i'll have to run around to a three-ball exchange and see if i can't dig up an outfit a patent fire escape and a short-handled pickaxe was the best i could do we made the board jump up fast inside and down i went then there was acrobatics swinging across to the three-inch window ledge balancing with one foot on nothing and single hand work with the pickaxe lucky that shutterbar was half rusted away she came open with a bang when she did come and it near sent me down into the barrels me eyelashes held though and there i was up against the window see anything says the boss room the rent says i for it looked like we pried open the vacant flat just then the sash goes up and something shiny glitters in the dark i was just letting go with one hand to swing for a head when someone lets loose a dago remark that was mighty businesslike and more or less familiar is it you says i if you're the lady brigandess own up sudden ah says she thankful like as if she'd seen a horse win by a nose then she puts up the rib tickler and grabs me by the wrist guess your lady friend's here i sings out to the boss have you got her says he no says i she's got me but no sooner does she hear him than she lets go of me shoves her head out the window and calls up to him the boss says something back and for the next two minutes they swap dago talk to beat the cars how shall i pass her up says i just then she made a spring for that rope ladder of ours and overhands up like a trapeze star and me thinking we'd need a derrick or a boston's chair there wasn't no time for reunions at that stage of the game nor for hard luck stories either none of us was pining to hold any sociables with the malabistos we quit the chowder club on the jump streaked up the hill into mott street and piled into one of those fuzzy two-horse chariots that they keep hooked up for weddings and funerals where to says the bone thumper headed for buffalo and let loose to beat the empire state express says i but hunt for asphalt that fetched us up second avenue but there wasn't any conversing done till we put fifty blocks behind us then i reckon the boss asked the lady brigandess if she missed any meals lately from the way he gave orders to steer for a food refinery she must have allowed that she had not having time to be particular we hit a goulash emporium where they spell the meat cards mostly with cz's but they gave us a private room upstairs which was what we wanted and it wasn't until we got inside that we had a full-length view of her say i was glad we landed so far east of broadway post me for a welcher if she wasn't rigged out in the same kind of a chorus costume that she wore when we saw her last over there in italy only it was more so it was the kind of costume that'd been all right on a cigarette card or outside a luna park joint and it would let her into the orion ball without a ticket but it wasn't built for circulating round new york in piffle piffle says i to the boss they'll think we've pinched her out of a caralfi ballet 
hadn't we better send for your lady friend's trunk? The boss grinned, but he looked her over as satisfied as if she'd been dressed according to his own watercolor sketches. She was something of a star, yes, yes. If you were looking for figure and condition, she had em. And when it came to the color scheme, well, no grease paint manipulator ever mixed cafe au lait and raspberry pink the way it grew on her. For a maiden Italy girl, she was the real meringue. We'll see about clothes later, says the boss, and orders up seventeen kinds of skizedski to be served in the relays. She brought a appetite with her all right, even if she had mislaid her suitcase. And while she was pitching into what passes for grub on Second Avenue, she told the boss the story of her life. Leastways, that's what it sounded like to me. The way I gets it from the boss was like this. Her father, the old brigand Pentanta, couldn't get over the way we'd banished his bunch of third-rate kidnappers with our tin armor play. He accumulated a sort of ingrowing grouch and soured on the whole push because they wouldn't turn state's evidence as to who had given us the dope to do em. The lady brigandess, she had stood that for a while, until one day she gets her Irish up, tells the old man how she tipped us off herself, and then makes tracks out of the country. One way and another, she'd heard a lot about America, so she takes out yellow tickets on a few spare sparks and buys a steerage berth for New York. Well, she hadn't more than got past Sandy Hook before a Malabisto runner spotted her. So did the advance man of another gang. They sized up the gold hoops on her ears, her real money necklace, and some of the other furniture she sported, and they invited her to come to tea. Just how the scrap began or what it was all about, she didn't know, so the story by rounds hasn't been told. The next thing she knew, though, they had hustled her into the bend and bottled her up into that back room, but not before she'd done a little extemporaneous carving on her own account. I gathered that three or four of the Malabistos needed some plain sewing done on them after the bell rang, and that the rest wasn't so anxious for her society as at first. She'd been cooped up for two days when she managed to get hold of a Dago woman, who promised to carry that cuff to the place where old Vincenzo had told her we hung out in New York. So far, it's as good as playing leading heavy in the shadows of a great city, says I. But what's down for the next act? Where does she want to go now? Say, you thought the boss had been nipped with the goods on. He goes strawberry color to his ears. Next, he takes a look across the table at her where she sits, quiet and easy, as much to home as the lady Graftwad on the back seat of the tonneau. She was taking notice of him, too, kind of running over his points, like he was something rich she'd won at a raffle and was glad to get. But the boss, he braced up and looked me straight in the eye. Shorty, says he, I want to call your attention to the fact that this young lady is something like 3,000 miles from home, that we're the only two human beings on this side of the ocean she knows by sight, and that once she risked us a good deal to do us a service. I'll put my name to all that, says I, but what does it lead up to? Where do we exit? That, says the boss, is a conundrum. And she ain't got any program, says I. She, or that is, says the boss, trying to duck. She says she wants to go with us. Phew, says I, through my front teeth. This is so sudden. 
Just tell the lady, will you, that I've resigned. No, you don't, Shorty, says the boss. You'll see this thing through. But look at them circus clothes, says I. I got no aunts or grandmothers or second cousins that I could unload a lady brigandess on. Nor I, says the boss. But he didn't look half so worried as he might. Say, when I came to figure out what we was up against, I could feel little cold storage whiffs on my shoulder blades. Suppose someone should meet you in the middle of a herald square, hand you a ring-tailed tiger, and then skidoo. What? That would be an easy one compared to our proposition. It wasn't a square deal to shake her, and she made up her mind not to stay put anywhere again. Wait here until I telephone someone, says the boss. Delighted, says I. Better ring up the Jerry Society, too, while you're about it. They might help us out. The lady brigandess and I didn't have a real sociable time when the boss was gone. I could see she was watching every move I made as much as to say, You can't lose me, Charlie. It was just as cheery as waiting in the sergeant's room for bail. When the boss does show up, he wears a regular breakfast food smile that made me leery, for when he looks tickled, it don't signify that things are coming his way. Generally, it only means that he's going to break out in a new spot. It just occurred to me, says he, that I had accepted an invitation from the Van Eubens for the opera. What kind of a bluff did you throw, says I? None at all, shorty, says he. I just asked if they would have room for three, and they said they would. Say, the boss don't need no noive tonic, does he? You know about the Van Eubens, don't you? They weigh in at something like forty millions and are a good fifth on Mrs. Aston's list. Straight goods now, says I. You don't reckon to spring this aggregation on the diamond horseshoe, do you? We must put up in time somehow, says he. I thought it might be all grand Josh until I watched some of his moves. First, we drives over to Fifth Avenue and stops on one of those places where it says robes on a brass plate outside. The boss stays in there four minutes and comes out with a piece of dry goods that they must have stood him up a hundred for. Kind of an opera cloak, ulster length, all rusty black silk outside and white inside. The lady brigandess, she puts it on with no more fuss than if she'd been brought up on such things and had ordered this one a month ahead. Next, we heads for our own quarters, having shifted our Mott Street chariot for the real article, with rubber tires and silver-plated lamps. About that time, I got wise to the fact that the boss and her ladyship were ringing me into their talk, and I was getting curious. I see the boss shaking his head like he was trying to prove an alibi, and every once in a while pointing to me. First thing I knows, she quit his side of the carriage and was snuggling up alongside of me and cooing away in some outlandish kind of baby talk, and I was glad I didn't savvy. I made no kick, though, until she begins to pat me on the head. "'Call her off, will you?' says I. "'I'm no lost kid.' The young lady is just expressing her thanks, says the boss, to the gallant young hero who so nobly rescued her from the Malabistos. Don't shy, shorty. She says that anyone so brave as you needn't worry about not being handsome. He was kidding me, see. I knew he'd given us some fairy tale or other, but I didn't have any comeback that she could understand. 
I felt like a monkey, though, having my hair mussed and thinking maybe next minute she'd give me the knife. And the boss, he sat there grinning like a jack-lantern. I didn't get a chance to break away until we got to our own ranch. Then we left her sitting in the buggy while we went up to make a lightning change. Sure, I got a head waiter's rig, bought at the time I had to lead off the Grand March at the Tim Grogan Association's 10th Annual Ball, but I never looked to wear it out attending Grand Opera. I hope the Van Eubens will appreciate that I'm giving them a treat, says I. They'll be blind if they don't, says the boss. Is it your collar that hurts? No, it's the shoes, says I, but the pain'll numb down by the time we get there. We made our grand entry about the end of the second spasm. The Van Eubens had taken their corners. It was Papa Van Eubens, looking like ready money, and Mama Van Eubens made up regardless, and Sis Van Eubens one of those tall Gainsborough girls that any piker could pick for a winner on form and past performance. Say, it took all the front I had in stock just to tag along as an also-ran, but when I thought of the boss, heading the procession, I was dead sorry for him. And what kind of game do you think he hands out? Straight talk, nothing but. Of course, he didn't make no family history out of telling who his lady friend was, but as far as he went, it tallied with the card, even to letting on that she was a lady brigandess. Out we go now, says I to myself, and looks to see Mama Van Eubens throw a cat fit. But she didn't. She just squealed a little, same's if someone had tickled her behind the ear. And then she began slinging that goigly-goigly Newport talk that Sixth Avenue sales ladies use. Sis Van Eubens caught the same cue, and to hear em, you thought the boss had done something real cute. They gave the lady brigandess the high-bridge wigwag and shooed her into a stage-corner chair. She never made a kick at anything until they tried to take away her cloak. Not much. She was just beginning to be stuck on that. She kept it wrapped around her like she knew the proprietor wasn't responsible for overcoats. The boss tried to tell her how there wasn't any grand larceny intended, but it was a no-go. She had her suspicions of the crowd— so they just had to let her sit there, draped in black. And at that, she wasn't any misfit. Now I'd been inside the Metropolitan once or twice before, having blown myself to a standy just for the sake of looking at the real things with their war paint on. But I wasn't feeling any more to home in the back of that box than I would in the pilot house of an airship. But the lady brigandess didn't show no more stage fright than an auctioneer, she just holds her chin up and looks out at all the display of open-work dressmaking and cut-glass exhibit without so much as batting an eyelash. She was taking it all in, too, from the bargain hats in the family circle to the diamond tummy warmers in the pottery. But you'd never guess that she just escapes from a Dago back district where they have one mail a week. If I hadn't seen her chumming with a hold-up gang that couldn't have bought fifteen-cent lodgings on the Bowery... I'd bet the limit that she was a thoroughbred in disguise. There was some rubber in that, of course, and I expect we had the safety vault crowd guessing as to what kind of a prize the Van Eubens had won, but it didn't faze her a bit. She just gave him a horse-show stare, as cool as a mint frappe. The ringing up of the curtain didn't disturb her any either. 
when a chesty baritone sauntered down toward the footlights and began calling the chorus names she glanced over her shoulder casual-like just to see what the row was all about and then went on sizing up the folks in the boxes she couldn't have done it better if she'd taken lessons by mail if she would only talk gurgles mrs van Eyben, doesn't she speak anything but italian pure tuscan is all she knows says the boss and the way she talks is better than any music you'll hear tonight. Wait until she has satisfied her eyes. Pretty soon the baritone quits jawing the chorus, and a prima donna in spangled clothes comes to the front. Maybe it was Melba or Nordica. Anyway, she was an A-1 warbler. She hadn't let go of more than a dozen notes before the lady brigandess begins to sit up and take notice. First, she has a kind of surprised look, as if a ringer had been sprung on her. And then, as the high sea artist begins to let herself go, she swings around and listens with both ears. The music didn't seem to go in one side and out the other. It stuck somewhere between, and swayed and lifted her like a breeze in a posy bush. I could hear her toe tapping out the tune and see her head keep time to it. Why, if I could get my money's worth out of music like that, I'd buy a season ticket. When the prima donna had cut it off, with a voice way up in the flies somewhere, and the house had rose to her, as the bleachers do when one of the giants knocks a three-bagger, the lady brigandess was still sitting there, waiting for more. The trance didn't last long, though. She just cast one eye around the boxes, where the folks were splitting gloves and waving fans and yelling, Bravo, bravo, so that you'd have thought somebody carried Ohio by a big majority, and then she takes a notion to get into the game herself. Shucking that high-priced opera cloak, she jumps up, drops one hand on her hip, holds the other up to her lips, and peels off a kind of whoopee yodel that shakes the skylight. Talk about your corner bugle calls. That little ventriloquist pass of hers had him stung to a whisper. It cut through all that patter and screech like a siren whistle splitting a fishhorn serenade, and it was as clear as the ring of silver sleigh bells on a frosty night. After that, it was all up to her. The other folks quit and turned to see who had done it. Two or three thousand pairs of double-barreled opera glasses were pointed our way. The folks behind them found something worth looking at, too. Our brigandess wasn't in disguise any more. She stood up there at the box rail, straight as a Gibson girl, her black hair hanging two thick braids below her waist, the gold hoops in her ears all a-jingle, her little fringed jacket rising and falling, and her black eyes snapping like a pair of burning trolley fuses. We'll say, if she won the pastel, I never saw one. I guess the star singer thought so, too. She just smiled and nodded at the others, but she blew a kiss up to our lady before she left. Now, I don't know just what would have happened next if someone hadn't shown up at the back of the box and asked for the boss. It was the Italian consul that we'd been to see earlier in the day. Where'd you find her, says he. I mean, in who, says the boss. Why, her highness, the princess Padova. Beg pardon, says the boss. But if you being the young lady there, you're wrong. She's the daughter of a poor but honest brigand chief, and she's just come from Tuscany to discover New York. She's the Princess Padova if I'm a toik, says the consul. Ask her to step back here a moment. 
It sounded like a pipe dream, all right. Who ever saw a princess rigged out for the tambourine act and mixin' with a lot of chestnut roasters? But old Whiskers had the evidence down pat, though. As he told it, she was sure enough a princess so far as the tag went, only the family had been in the nobility business so long that the pedigree had lasted out the plunks. It seemed that a way back, before the Chicago fire of the Sayers Heeningo, her great-grandpop had princed it in regulation shape. Then there'd come a grand mix-up, a war of something, and a lot of princes had either lost their jobs or got on the blacklist. Her great-grandpop had been one of the kind that didn't know when he was licked. They euchred him out of his castle and building lots, but he gathered up what was left of his gang and slid for the tall timber, where he went on princing the best he knew how. As he couldn't disgrace himself by working and hadn't lost a hankering for regular meals, he got into the habit of taking up contributions from whoever came along, calling it a road tax. And that's how the Padova family fell into playing the hold-up game. But the old man Padova, the princess's father, never forgot that if he'd had his rights, he would have been boss of his ward, and he always acted accordin'. So when he picked the consul up on the road one night with a broken leg, he gave him the best in the house, patched him up like an ambulance surgeon, and kept him aboard free until he could walk back to town. And so, when Miss Padova takes it into her head to elope to America with a tin trunk, Papa Padova hikes himself down to the nearest telegraph office and cables over a general alarm to his old friend, who's been made consul. I've been having Mulberry Ben raked with a fine-toothed comb, says he. But when I saw her highness stand up here in the box, I knew her at a glance, although it's been ten years since I saw her last. Then he asked her if he hadn't called the trick, and she said he had. Now, says he, perhaps you'll tell us why you came to America. Sure, says she, or something that meant the same. I've come over after me best feller and made up my mind that I'll marry him, and she slips an arm around the boss's neck, just as cool as though they'd been on a moonlight excursion. Mr. Consul's face gets as red as a fireman's shirt, and the Van Eubens catch their breath with both fists, and I begins to see what a lovely mess I'd been helping the boss get himself into. He never toined a hair, though. The honor is all mine, says he, just as if he meant every word of it. Ahem, says the consul, kind of steadying himself against the curtains. Perhaps it would be best, before anything more is said on this subject, for the princess to have a talk with my wife. We'll take her home. Well, they settled it that way, and I was mighty glad to get her off of our hands so easy. Next afternoon, the consul shows up at our ranch as gay as an upstate deacon who's seeing the town incog. Sir, he says to the boss, giving him the right hand of fellowship, you're a real gent, and after what you did last night, I'm proud to know you, and I'm happy to state that it's all off with the princess. Then he went on to tell how Miss Padova, being out of her latitude, hadn't got her book straight. She carried away with the notion that when a princess went out of her class, she had a right to sign on any chap that she liked the looks of, without waiting for him to make the first move. They did it that way at home. But when the consul's wife had explained the United States way and how the boss was a good deal of a rooster himself, with real money enough to buy up a whole rink full of dago princes, 
Why, Miss Padova feels like a plush Christmas box at a January sale. She turns on the sprinkler, wants to know what they suppose the boss thinks of her, and says she wants to go back to Italy by the next trolley. But she'll get over feeling bad, says the consul. We'll ship her back next Friday, and you can take it from me that the incident is closed. I was looking for the boss to open a bottle or two on that, but he didn't. For a pleased man, he held in well. Poor little girl, says he, looking absent-minded toward the Bronx. Then he cheers up a minute. I say, do you mind if I run up and see her once before she sails? You may for all of me, says the consul, but if you'll listen to my advice, you won't go. He did, though, and lugged me along for a chaperone, which is some out of my line. I'm afraid they'd rather overdone the explaining business, says he on the way up, and while I had my own ideas as to that, I had sense enough for once not to butt in. That was an ice house call, all right. They left us on the mat while our cards went up, and after a while, the hired goyle comes down to give us the book agent glare. The missus, says she, says as how the young lady begs to be excused. Does the young lady know we're here, says the boss. She does, says the goyle, and shuts the door. Gee, says I, that's below the belt. The boss hadn't a word left in him, but I wouldn't have met him in the ring about then for anything less than the bookie's bundle. Just as we hit the sidewalk, we hears a front window go up and down comes a red rose plunk in front of us. Many happy returns of the day, says I, handing it to the boss. I suppose you're right, says he. It's the only way to look at it, I expect. And yet, oh, hang it all, shorty, what's the use? Ah, say, says I, switch off. It's all over, and you've sidestepped taking the count. End of chapter 3